So as we've traveled around the world, we had this idea that everyone should have a chance to be included in getting the same kind of information and knowledge required to make good investment choices. And with that, we decided to put on our own conference online and completely free at Crypto2020Summit.com. Yes, Pizza Mind is very correct. Uh, we are putting on the Crypto 2020 Summit. This is a free online conference from January 29th to 31st. And we want everybody who's listening to this to go sign up. Uh, it's free only for a limited time. This is a conference that you guys can tune into on your computer, at your home. Uh, you could be in your PJs. You could be sipping tea. It's going to be awesome. Every day we're adding more speakers to the lineup. You can go check it out at www.crypto2020summit.com. Pause this episode right now. If you haven't signed up yet, uh, you can do it on your mobile. You can do it on your iPad. You can do it on your BlackBerry. You can do it on your MacBook. Do it. Do it. As Shia LaBeouf would say, just do it. And Nike. Okay, bye. What is up, Crypt Nation? Good citizens of Crypt Nation. We are here in San Francisco, Blockchain Week, and I am joined by a very special guest in person today, uh, Thomas Bertani, the president of Poseidon Group and the founder of Provable and I Do. And we're going to get into all of that. But first, Thomas, welcome to the show. Hello, Bryce. Thank you for having me here today. We are very, very, very pleased. So cryptocurrency, it's kind of a new space. Kind of not. I don't know. It's been around for about 10 years. But in your mind, when you're thinking about you know solving problems in the crypto space, do you differentiate between cryptocurrency and blockchain? Or is it one and the same for you? Um, I wouldn't say it's the same. Uh, I mean, the term uh, like cryptocurrency to me is really confusing um, because crypto is like a term that sounds I would say weird for the average Joe. It doesn't it doesn't say much of what it is. And currency is something that you know um, is a term that we use every day uh, for you know fiat currencies. Um, but I mean, from my experience, people don't really know what a currency is. Um, so it's really complicated for people to understand. Um, you know that uh, cryptocurrency means you know a new kind of asset class living on, uh, you know, blockchain. So I, I think there is a huge difference between, um, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrency. In general, um, I would say that cryptocurrency is like a specific type of crypto assets uh, that are implemented on top of uh, specific blockchain platforms. Why blockchain is just, uh, you know, a wider term that today probably um, just, represents you know the industry um of you know decentralized uh, technologies you know being used to implement you know decentralized applications such as uh some crypto assets or or things like that so it's an entire new ecosystem i think like blockchain is very specific uh, technical term that today is like representing the, this ecosystem as a whole also in the mind of uh, you know uh, normal people they see blockchain as this uh, you know strange ecosystem they don't know much about where probably bitcoin lives or some other you know cryptocurrencies are running while you know cryptocurrency is just a mess of a term that i wish we were not using <laughs> yeah i feel like uh, people it's just a buzzword at the at this point is it doesn't really hold much weight to it and you know we talk about blockchain and crypto on here but i feel like every episode we always need to just keep on breaking it down breaking it down because it it does contain so much weight behind it 
And another thing we talk about a lot on is DeFi, decentralized finance. And everybody has a, like a little different explanation of it. And I know Provable is operating in the decentralized finance space. So, I mean, we could talk about what is decentralized finance, but why don't we talk about what is finance? Well, I guess, you know, the, the reason why DeFi as a term is being used is exactly because of the limitations we find in finance today. Um, like, uh, the you know, the need for a new term, such as, you know, DeFi, which is, you know, basically um, an abbreviation of, uh, you know, decentralized finance, so DeFi, something that doesn't scare people and that, uh, you know, represents something new, is like strongly need to represent uh, a radical change. So finance is like a, a sector that has been around for like, uh, I guess, centuries at least. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, you know, it, it's, I, I guess the major problem that we are trying to solve with uh, DeFi is the over-regulation that we have seen in finance over, uh, well, recent years, really. Um, like uh, the, I, I would say the last century, mostly. So we wouldn't really need decentralized technologies if there wasn't a problem with traditional finance. So it's not that we are reinventing the wheel just because, you know, it's fun. It's because there are some uh, real problems, such as the lack of transparency and overregulation that makes it really complicated for companies like uh, startups to, to basically innovate and to, uh, to change in a way that can be truly disruptive. So I feel like uh, DeFi is like uh, maybe a conjugation of fintech, really, where fintech is like trying to innovate on top of regulation, basically, um, and on top of traditional finance, while DeFi is trying to reject all the assumptions on the fact that finance is working as intended and trying to um, reinvent the foundations of it. Yeah, I know that there is currently a bill trying to get passed in American Congress called the Financial Services Innovation Act by Representative Patrick McHenry. And he's basically proposing, we've talked a little bit about it on the show before, but he's talking about proposing a permanent public beta is what he's calling it for uh, decentralized finance. And it's, he's like, I don't like the term sandbox because sandbox doesn't get taken seriously. But basically what it is, is that every office that has any sort of regulatory control in America, whether it's SEC, the uh, CFTC, they get an office within it that is this new public beta area that people could come in and bypass all regulations or most regulations have a, have some goals and stipulations and stuff but anyhow so i think it's cool that like you know fintech is trying to re uh, innovate on the regulatory side and then now we have crypto that is now getting its kind of place where it's trying to innovate uh, without regulation. So there's a lot of interesting things going on. I, I definitely want everybody listening to go check out the Financial Services Innovation Act. And so so, so what are the kinds of things that we could do in DeFi? Is it just lending? Like kind of whenever I see new DeFi projects come out, it's basically just peer-to-peer -peer lending. But what more is there that we can do with this technology? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Actually, um, I think that the ecosystem that we see today is sort of limited by the concept of over collateralization uh, that we see being like 
adopted by uh, most of the projects. That's because like the assets that live on a specific blockchain, such as Ethereum, uh, are uh, limited right now. So we have things like uh, stablecoins or, um, you know, DAI with MakerDAO or Ethereum itself, like Ethers, that live on that single platform called Ethereum and most DeFi platforms are being built on top. So when we create new tools within this uh, like infrastructure, what happens is that we need to typically, we, we need to put a collateral to, for example, create a synthetic assets, uh, uh, a synthetic asset or uh, to like collateralize a, a financial instrument or uh, whatever is needed. So this is the example with uh, MakerDAO, for instance, but it's also an example with uh, synthetics, with uh, all the synthetic assets uh, they, they make. And uh, it's the case for uh, many other like low-level infrastructure tools that are being built right now. And in all those cases, there is like... Um, the the need to like over uh, collateralize a given asset so that if something uh, wrong happens basically you you lose your collateral in a way which can be fully enforced on the blockchain so this gives you full transparency because basically the you are sure that nothing wrong will ever happen and that in the worst case uh, you will get enough collateral uh, to cover for a potential loss so this means that basically the full transparency provided by smart contracts is giving you like uh, some guarantees on the fact that uh, uh, the the risk is close to zero so what else can we implement? Well, uh, I guess we are starting with the foundations, right? Which is, you know, those uh, new assets and those new, like, stable assets, uh, exchanges. And, you know, we can build any financial instrument on top, potentially. Uh, so th- this is still a long way to go because, you know, DeFi is, like, just growing now. And I guess this term didn't even exist eight months ago. So... Uh, I think it's quite impressive uh, to see such a growth in, a, uh, you know, such a short time span. So I'm really impressed about this. Um, but in general, I think we see many more financial instruments coming, which are more complex uh, than the ones we see today. Um, so getting interested is something uh, critical because, like, uh, is um, something uh, that, like, could... Uh, power many other applications on top and that is sort of appealing also for the average Joe that is not part of blockchain so in turn this could uh, encourage uh, like liquidity and this could uh, help uh, this ecosystem to uh, gain more significance because right now its size is still slightly above like half a billion so it's still relatively small uh, however having those uh, dynamics and those incentives uh, will slowly like encourage additional liquidity uh, to make it in- into the space and will gradually uh, make more and more relevant. So I hope everybody's picking up on what he's putting down here. It's basically the fact that the smart contracts and the blockchain are so transparent that you could at all times understand your risk profile. And kind of in the 2008-2009 crisis, one of the reasons why a lot of the banks went down is because they didn't even know what risk they were exposed to at the time, um, which seems absurd. But uh, at these big corporations, a lot of the times things get so muddied that you know you don't even understand where your risk is. So that's that's something that you know putting that on the blockchain uh, and making it publicly auditable at all times 
kind of reduces everybody's risk uh, that's involved in that ecosystem. So that's really cool. So, uh, you know, one of my things that I hear a lot of backlash on is the Bitcoiners think that DeFi is a dumb term because with, with the invention of Bitcoin, that was when DeFi was made possible. But like you said, quote unquote, DeFi never really got the name until Ethereum came about and people started making these Ethereum apps. So this is kind of a two-part question. Is one, are you more bullish on Bitcoin than Ethereum or more bullish on Ethereum than Bitcoin? And also, you know, what is it about Ethereum that's that makes it so DeFi possible? Like, is it just the fact that it's easier to code on? Or, you know, what what is that thing going on right there? Okay, so... I guess this is quite controversial, right? Um, like uh, Ethereum uh, uh, versus Bitcoin. Um, I mean, I, I, I was defining myself a Bitcoiner uh, till a few years ago, uh, as basically there was nothing else in the space, really. Uh, so since I joined in 2012, uh, you know, there was just Bitcoin. Um, and I remember there were there were the first altcoins coming out, such as, uh, you know, Namecoin or Litecoin, uh, all these uh, first ones. And it was quite funny at the time uh, because it, it wasn't really, you know, it was just a, chance to uh, like uh, experiment uh, so people were just uh, you know playing around with those uh, you know uh, forks of uh, bitcoin uh, to check if something else could be done um, some, something else which was uh, considered uh, relevant and then you know a- ethereum uh, uh, like uh, was released a few years later and i i remember starting working on it very early like uh, the the mainnet was um, just launched. Uh, I think it was August, if I'm not wrong. It was um, 2015. So in uh, September, uh, I remember writing my first smart contract, and it, it was quite impressive, mostly because of the ease to write those applications. So I would say that the main innovation that we got from Ethereum is like the simplicity to build uh, decentralized applications, uh, which is something that could potentially be done to some extent also with Bitcoin, but the complexity is so high <laughs> that um, you know very few developers uh, are actually capable to do so, which somehow makes it uh, harder. You know, um, to it makes it much ar- uh, harder uh, to basically um, get traction because you know there are so many potential ways to build on it that um, you know it's not necessary true that the way you are um you you have decided uh, you will build something is the one that most people will like uh so the i i think this is most like this is mostly the approach with bitcoin like uh, let's get uh, given a specific use case out there let's show the code to implement it and if the use case is something people like or people find useful then we we will improve it, we'll keep improving it uh, until it's super efficient. So th- this has been the case, for example, with, uh, uh, you know, the uh, multi-sig proposal that now uh, we have been using for a while or, or also for, uh, you know, se- segregated witness and for many other changes in Bitcoin. While with Ethereum, um, it basically moves to like a higher level, uh, the, the, the this specific problem. So basically when you write an application, you don't really care about the efficiency of it, I mean, the fact that there could be a more efficient application doesn't mean that yours will not be used or that yours will not be liked by your uh, audience. You could still use an 
like inefficient application on Ethereum. But the fact that everyone can write an application on Ethereum makes it very appealing because basically you could have anyone propose their own use cases that maybe nobody had thought of. And if someone likes it, maybe they will eventually improve it or maybe not. But the fact that, uh, you know, it's natively interoperable or as people say now, like composable, then uh, it means basically um, that you can just work on your own application uh, and then uh, like interoperate with whatever is already out there without uh, having to optimize every single bit. So I think that's something quite significant with Ethereum. The fact that smart contracts can natively speak to each other is like uh, critical for the success of the application. It's also probably one of its limits. I remember uh, like one of the main uh, criticism from like the Bitcoiners uh, always mention is a conference that I attended in uh, Austin, Texas in uh, 2014, where um, Vitalik was like speaking there and uh, he was uh, explaining to everyone how cool Ethereum was going to be and you know how powerful smart contracts uh, could be on top of the Ethereum virtual machine like the flexibility of writing smart contracts in something that looked like JavaScript like in Solidity right and someone from the crowd asked him uh, like uh, I won't hurt. He, he believed the smart contracts could be safe, given that uh, you know Turing completeness was such complicated to get right uh, on a, a blockchain. And his answer, I think, is <laughs> quite interesting. As back then, what he said is that he didn't expect any smart contract to have to ever be longer than 100 lines of code. Uh, so he expected them to be very short um, and to be very specific, which is not what we have today, really. So the market evolved differently than what we thought. Indeed, you know, um, securing those applications is turned out to be quite a challenge. But I, I think we are getting there. Uh, the fact that the developers community of Ethereum is probably, well, is the biggest uh, in the blockchain space makes it um, like interesting to find solutions to all kinds of problems that arise, such as uh, the you know security uh, problem and the challenge of writing smart contracts that are not just, uh, you know, possibly efficient, uh, but that that are also like, you know, secure as uh, if we write uh, transparent smart contracts that are not, we end up with problems such as the DAO and many others that we would like uh, uh, to avoid if possible. Very fascinating. So let's jump on over to uh, the problem that you're trying to solve at Provable. And I think the name of the problem is called an Oracle problem. But can you go ahead and tell me what you're trying to solve with your platform Provable? What is it? Um, why do we need it? Um, yeah, I think that... So I think it's interesting to go back a few years and check uh, how the Oracle problem was defined um, in uh, like 2012 and even before. Actually, this term, um, to, this term has been uh, used uh, very early, like since 2010 or 2011. And it was defined in the Bitcoin wiki. So I don't know if many people know, but um, like Satoshi before leaving, uh, helped to like start a resource for Bitcoin that has existed, existed pretty much since its, its inception, which is the um, Bitcoin Wiki. So this is like a, a community uh, maintained um, like um, knowledge base where people could, uh, um, you know, define uh, the challenges or the terms or things like that. Um, and at the beginning, 
um, you know, all Bitcoin specific terms were defined there and there were like some active discussions as well. It's basically a wiki format so anyone can contribute. Um, something that was listed there is also this Oracle term. And I remember uh, preparing a presentation in uh, like uh, fall 2014 where um, I was like to explain to um, an general audience like a non-technical audience smart contracts and smart contracts back then uh, were not really ethereum specific they were just the concept of having like some more or less complicated um, logics built on top of a blockchain platform such as even just a multi-sig address like an address where more than one people need to sign in order for a transfer to happen or to be successful so and oracles were part of that presentation. Uh, so I did my first research on oracles to explain it to uh, like to other people was um, oracles math. And the, the oracle problem uh, since its inception has been uh, around solving the uh, issue of uh, the blockchain being a walled garden. Like uh, we say that the blockchain is a walled garden to mean that it's impossible for the blockchain to speak with anything external to it, uh, such as the internet. So if you want to design, you know, um, uh, a smart contract for um, like on Ethereum or on Bitcoin or on any blockchain platform, really, you have this limitation. So it's impossible to basically get data from the real world because the way we get data from the real world um, typically is via the internet. Like we have services, that uh, for simplicity, I like calling uh, data sources that uh, provide data, such as uh, what is the price of a given asset? Uh, um, what's the temperature in San Francisco? Or is a given flight late? Things like that. Uh, so any real world event or a data that lives on the internet is sort of interesting if we want to build an ecosystem of applications that are decentralized where those applications have an impact on the real world because if they if there is no way for those applications you know to reach out to the real world to understand what's going on it will be it will be impossible for them uh, in turn to to like have any kind of impact so sorry just to interrupt real quick so kind of to recap because i feel like that was a lot so we're kind of going into a world of like autonomous machine to machine value transfer but if if these machines are getting data from the real world like you said the uh the flight from san francisco is late but it's supposed to execute a payment a trustless payment automatically um and trustlessly but if it gets that data from a centralized source that centralized source could be corrupted is that what you're saying and it wouldn't make the entire system decentralized because if you bring in an off-chain source of data it could actually execute the smart contract completely wrong i i think that's what i'm hearing uh, yeah, that's correct. And actually, I, th- I think at this stage, I-, I could maybe share that the first smart contract I wrote, uh, the-, the one I was mentioning earlier, uh, was in in September 2015, was 
exactly the one you just explained, which is basically, uh, it was actually uh, the winning project of the London Fintech Week Hackathon in uh, 2015. And just one month after the release on mainnet of uh, Ethereum, of the Ethereum mainnet, I was in a team where we built like a flight delay insurance. So basically, uh, we were using a, a smart contract on Ethereum to check if a given flight, flight was late or not. And this smart contract was automatically triggering a payout in case the flight was uh, late more than three hours or things like that. So one problem we faced was the fact that we couldn't get the data from for the flight, uh, like to understand if a given flight was late or not. And the, the, the data is easy to fetch once... Uh, you know, you browse the internet, you just look on, on Google, you, you can look like on many different data sources, you know, such as uh, like the airport uh, uh, website or the airline or like professional uh, um, like feeds of uh, flight data. And basically um, what, um, what we did was using a very initial version of a provable that back then was called uh, Oracle Eyes. And basically that was an Oracle. That was like uh, the, this entity which somehow solves the problem of unavailability of data on the blockchain. So the, the Oracle problem is indeed the impossibility for smart contracts to communicate with anything external to the blockchain where they live. And uh, the Oracle is this new weird uh, intermediary, if you want. Uh, I mean, conceptually, it's, uh, it's weird because it, it's like uh, counterintuitive. It's a new intermediary in an ecosystem that is trying to get rid of all intermediaries. So why do we need that intermediary? Well, to solve the limitation. And how does the, limit, the, the intermediary solve it? Well, basically, it doesn't leave that oracle that somehow provides data from the internet to the blockchain doesn't live on the blockchain. It lives in part on the blockchain and in part outside. So it can easily communicate because it's designed to basically um, have a piece, a smart contract component and another component living uh, on the internet. So basically it's uh, it's built to solve that specific problem and it does it not just for itself, providing data to its own smart contract, but it can provide data from the internet to any other smart contract. So is it an intermediary? Well, yes, because it's somehow enabling the communication with the internet while natively the smart contracts wouldn't be able to do so. But is it bad? Well, not really, because it turns out that this intermediary can be trustless. So we can build it in a way where the data that we get from the Oracle cannot be tampered with by the Oracle. So we know that the Oracle is like an important component, which is complementary to the blockchain itself uh, to get data, but it's it cannot really do anything bad because anything it would do that's potentially damaging for um, you know the this, the smart contract logic could be detected and blocked by the receiving smart contract. So today we see like a variety of uh, oracles being implemented. There are many teams working on you know building uh, an oracle. Back then there were really few. We were among the the first ones and. Uh, Provable has been running that Oracle service uh, since then, since this, you know, flight delay insurance <laughs> prototype in September 2015. Uh, actually, we started operating even before then on Bitcoin. Uh, we, like we had a system where you could trigger Bitcoin payments depending on uh, real world events. 
like you could say if a flight is late then approve a certain bitcoin transaction um but we moved to ethereum straight after uh like the mainnet release in um, september 2015 and we have been live since then so today we are basically being used by approximately 1000 applications on in the ethereum space and more than uh, 200 are reaching out uh, like every month to get uh, uh, some kind of uh, you know data their like price feeds or um, you know randomness data in the case of uh, casinos that maybe need to get um, you know uh, dice thrown um, outside of the blockchain or you know any kind of uh, financial data really also you know flight delays or uh, temperature data I mean we, we have seen a bunch of uh, different data sources being used. So back to the problem of these data sources being tamperable or spoofable, right? So I, I kind of imagine maybe like, uh, let's just take the example of Augur or something. Say we have an Augur contract that's set up that says, Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. For the World Series, right? If the Astros beat the uh, Nationals, uh, then this player or this you know p- participant of the contract wins and gets paid one ETH, and the loser has to pay that one ETH. And they call out to an API from ESPN.com to settle to settle this contract. But ESPN.com is a centralized data source that you know could have permissions and could have tampering and all that stuff. And so some hacker hacks into ESPN and says, even though the Astros won, you know, this is actually the World Series is tonight. So I don't know who's actually won yet, but this is going to play after. So, okay. So the Astros won, um, but I have the API expose that the Nationals won. So all the contracts that are calling out to that API are essentially tampered with and, and executed in an improper way. So do oracles solve that problem or is that something that still needs to be solved? And how do you guys think of that? That's a very good question, as it's a very little understood uh, problem. We, the, I mean, the, the main fact here is that data is mostly trusted. Um, so if I was to ask you how many views uh, given YouTube video had, I mean, that question is like inherently trusted because basically there is no way to know what's the correct answer uh, we need to ask to like youtube as a trusted uh, authority as youtube may report a wrong number but the question is around basically uh, the number of views that youtube is claiming uh, a given video had so it's not possible to know in principle how many viewers uh, Uh, there have been we just know that according to youtube that specific video had a certain number of views so uh, it's not always like that but even if i i was to ask something like uh, much uh, less platform specific such as what's the 
temperature in San Francisco, well, that would be quite problematic because I'm not saying anything around, uh, you know, the... And this question is really vague. I mean, I didn't say anything around the specific time, the, the location, the number of decimals, the units I expect, or like what kind of uh, sensors I, I, I want to trust. Also, you know, we could do an average, but, um, you know, among which sensors and how do we know those sensors are not tampered with how do we know there is not someone um, you know that is like uh, heating uh, the sensors uh, uh, from uh, a short distance or things like that um, so th- this is this turns out to be a really complex uh, problem uh, to solve and i think that um, it cannot really be solved in principle in most cases so we need to trust someone the important part is that we are not trusting the like um, um, the the oracle like the oracle is just uh, delivering the data to the blockchain so we shouldn't be trusting the oracle we don't trust the oracle we don't want to trust the oracle but the data source is somehow trusted so we need to define the data source as um, the data source is the one that where the data originates from so if we for something simpler to solve is like around um, crypto price feeds, for example. Like if I was to ask, which is, by the way, a common uh, question for an oracle, what's the price of ETH in uh, US dollars? That would be a very easy problem to solve because the reality is that the price is mostly built out of like um, the market data on those markets where we have like uh, most of the liquidity. So uh, it would be enough to get as data sources the exchanges where we have most liquidity. So would we be trusting them? Yes. Does it mean that we are potentially not getting the price? Well, if I was to ask you what's the price of ETH today, you would still look on those sources. So this turns out to be the price we perceived as correct. So I don't think this could easily be tampered with uh, as, um, you know, uh, in this specific case as uh, data. But in other cases, such as, you know, number of views of YouTube video or things like that, uh, there is a centrally, a central authority that we are trusting, which is YouTube in that specific case. So it strictly depends on the data. Uh, in some cases, there are like a single trust lines we need to open. In other cases, there are not. Um, but in most cases, we need to trust uh, someone. The important part is that we don't open unnecessary trust lines, such as trusting the Oracle just to deliver the data in a way that it can be tampered with. Do you have a friend who's interested in getting into cryptocurrency, but they don't know where to start building their portfolio? Well, we have the answer. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders, just like myself or Bryce or Kevin, at the exact price point and in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply just sign up and copy our trades. Any profits that we make, you do too. Proportional to your investment, of course. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com slash crypto101. Thank you. So I know you guys just announced uh, you know, a very big announcement in Osaka at DevCon uh, which was, I think, last week or two weeks ago, and it is about the P token. And this has gotten a lot of discussion in the community, and people are kind of curious, so what's going on with the P token? What is it? 
how does it work in the system and, and why is it so critical to the DeFi infrastructure? So the uh, P-Token is actually a technology. So we typically refer to it as, uh, you know, P-Tokens, as we could potentially have many P-Tokens. So the P stands for uh, provable, uh, pegged, and portable. So they are basically uh, the three main uh, keywords that we want to use to describe them. And what they are is basically a provable uh, based technique that could enable crypto assets, let's say tokens in most cases, to basically uh, move from one blockchain to another. So we could call this like a two-way pack if you want. So what it means that uh, is, for instance, uh, you could have um, uh, an EOS as a, a token, like EOS, being used on Ethereum. So the, this would be called in that, the, this is uh, actually the very first P token we are going to release uh, in a few days. Uh, so it will be called uh, uh, P EOS, which means, um, you know, it's the P token uh, representation of EOS on Ethereum. So this is basically a way to um, use EOS on the Ethereum platform. You can potentially also do the opposite, right? You can have like PETH on EOS. Or you could use uh, like any, think of any token on Ethereum. You could have the P token representation on another blockchain. Or you could have any existing uh, token from any blockchain living on Ethereum. So uh, this is quite interesting because it like uh, solves um, an existing limitation of DeFi, which is uh, the fact that DeFi for its composability property is mostly getting traction on Ethereum. Like people keep building DeFi products on Ethereum because there are already, you know, the foundations of it on Ethereum. However, if we want to, if we look at like the first, uh, I don't know, 10 or 20 assets on CoinMarketCap that, uh, you know, are making the majority of, you know, the, the market cap, but also of the liquidity in this space, um, you will see that they are not all Ethereum-based. So what happens is that DeFi is somehow limited by the platform where it lives. So one of the first examples to solve that we have already seen with uh, uh, Bitcoin on Ethereum, there are a few projects that are trying to have uh, Bitcoin uh, living as an Ethereum token. So the most widely used at the moment is called uh, Wrapped Bitcoin, which is WBTC. So this is something that is always uh, referred to also as it's used by Compound, for instance. Um, But many platforms are starting to use uh, WBTC. So PBTC, for instance, is uh, a P-token representation of Bitcoin on Ethereum, and it would be possible to have it. We are not starting with that. We are starting with EOS instead, because there are already existing uh, like implementations of Bitcoin uh, on Ethereum. Ethereum, so we are not in a rush, uh, you know, uh, to solve a problem there that other people are are uh, already solving. Also, there is, you know, uh, TBTC, there is SBTC, there are already, uh, you know, few um, competing approaches that are trying to bring, um, like, the liquidity of Bitcoin on um, uh, the Ethereum platform. 
However, the P-Bitcoin approach is much wider in scope as it could potentially go in support of some of, the, of those approaches to secure to secure them, to provide additional transparency to the way they work. And it could be used with any token, so it's not limited to Bitcoin itself. So the way P-Tokens work is basically by using some uh, trusted computing techniques. So trusted computing is like a set of technologies that basically provide guarantees for the execution of a given piece of code of a given software. And the, these guarantees are provided by like um, a process of hardware isolation. So you basically get a piece of code, execute it on a fully locked down chip, and the producer of the chip, which may be, you know, uh, Qualcomm, it may, it may be Intel, it may be Apple, it may be, you know, anyone building chips. Basically, uh, they they could give you like basically a signature saying that according to them, your your piece of code was executed correctly on their machine in a fully locked down environment. So this is not like a decentralized approach to transparent execution of code, which is what we have with smart contracts, right? But this doesn't have the limitations of blockchain either. So we can go beyond like the limitations of blockchain and yet get some guarantees. And there are some ways, now I I don't want to spend uh, too much time going into the technical details, but there are some ways where basically this approach could be like uh, trust minimized so that it becomes like so unlikely that the... um, like someone could compromise or the the correct execution that is pretty much impossible. So this means we can lower um, the basically the risk factor, the the trust factor here, and we can come close to something like uh, a trustless a trustless execution. So uh, this is just the beginning. Like we are releasing now uh, the code base for. Uh, the PEOS implementation, but the this the the reason why we are raising this now is to get some community feedback and see what the community thinks of this approach. But this same approach could be used for any token. So we think this could change a lot on the way DeFi evolves, as it will basically facilitate the increase in liquidity and it will enable anyone with Bitcoin, for example, to issue uh, you know PBTC or anyone with EOS to issue PEOS on Ethereum. So it's basically a system where uh, people could freely move the ex- their existing liquidity from um, like one blockchain to the other. So is the way that this is kind of solved, like you set up an EOS contract that, or I guess I should say, how is it solved? Like if I send an EOS to this contract, then it mints a new PEOS on the Ethereum chain and it's locked. And then... The only way that that could get unlocked is if it gets something deposited back to it from the Ethereum chain. Is that kind of how it works? Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, that's uh, a much simpler explanation. <laughs> uh, that, that's actually um, how it works from a high level. So the user perceives uh, that uh, logic flow, which is uh, the important part as everything is automated. So the user can freely, uh, let, let's say you are a user with a P, one PEOS token on Ethereum. What you could do after like you have received it from someone else is potentially use a DAP uh, that uh, we, we are providing and and via this DAP, you can basically uh, speak with both the Ethereum blockchain and the EOS blockchain. And basically, you can destroy, like burn, your uh, PEOS token and 
get in exchange like one EOS token on EOS. Uh, so you can send it straight to an exchange and in this way, basically your PEOS has been transferred to an exchange where you can potentially sell it uh, for uh, you know USD or uh, whatever you want. So basically it's, it's very easy for you to exchange one PEOS for uh, like any other token regardless of where that other token lives. It may also not be on the same blockchain or it may be, uh, you know, uh, uh, fiat currency itself. So it will be uh, very easy for, uh, you know, market makers or for anyone looking to do arbitrage with DeFi or just people looking to move liquidity to, to do so via P-tokens because the PEG process is like automated and it takes a uh, you know, basically a few seconds. That sounds like a, a super amazing solution that you guys have come up with, basically unlocking uh, cross-chain liquidity or, you know, inter-blockchain communication. And it's something that, you know, since I've been in this space, has been a problem that has always been talked about. And now finally here towards the end of 2019, the problem has been solved. Um, so thank you for the P tokens. <laughs> Let's talk about, I know you guys have a really cool app. I downloaded it and started playing around with it. It's called I Do. E-I-D-O-O. And it's a wallet. It's an exchange. It's got a lot of interesting stuff. Um, you know, could you talk a little bit about that platform and some of the DeFi integrations and partnerships that, that are a part of that? Yep. So, um, so Adu is uh, like uh, an ecosystem. Is uh, it has the form of a mobile application, but what it really does is like simplifying access uh, to uh, like a decentralized exchange on Ethereum to uh, some of DeFi tools that uh, we we like interacting with. I will mention some of this in a bit. And it, it gives access also to like a crowdfunding platform. So if you need to do KYC, you can just do KYC once with a, a, a part of the service, which is called AIDUID. And this gives you access to pretty much any uh, service where uh, some kind of identification is needed uh, because of like regulation. So what like that application does is basically lowering the entry barrier for um, like uh, those kind of tools. So you can potentially, you know, um, in most cases, I would say avoid doing KYC and going straight to the smart contracts, right? Um, but since the application is somehow intermediating between the user and the smart contract, in some cases, like in order to comply with regulation, we had to like ask for the documents before helping the user to interact with the smart contract. So the 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 the, the wallet, the application is actually non-custodial. So the user is always in control of the private keys and uh, a dude cannot really, you know, steal funds or do anything bad, but it helps to interact with smart contracts. Um, so in some cases the uh, verifications are needed, other times they are not. So another service that is uh, part of that is like uh, um, um, a swap, where um, right now we have um, like uh, represented as a swap things that are typically also not seen as such. So for example, if you want to interact with Compound, uh, just to give an example, let's say you have um, DAI and you want to get, um, you know, interest um, on DAI. So what you would like to get in exchange is something called uh, C DAI, 
right? Which is the uh, compound token for DAI, which is um, interest bearing. So um, what you could do is going via the, the swap, which is basically just one swipe away from the application. So you just swipe on uh, the DAI token uh, and you click on uh, swap and you exchange the DAI with CDAI. So it's like if uh, conceptually um, you were exchanges, exchanging one token with the other, what you're really doing is under the hood, you are uh, sending a specific call to the smart contract of Compound. So there is an integration with Compound where basically it um, gives you back uh, the CDI token. And straight from the application, we are among the very few wallets where basically you see details for, you know, uh, once you have CDI, so you can see um, like uh, the accrued interest uh, or you can see the underlying uh, uh, asset balance or things like that. So it's very uh, neat as straight from your wallet without going to the DAP, you can see all the details for, um, you know, your your integration with, your interaction with Compound. so that, that's quite useful as today we are seeing, you know, tools such as InstaDAP or, you know, the different DAPs uh, being built in a way where basically we need a DAP browser and then we go to the specific DAP uh, to interact with uh, this DeFi system or another DeFi system. While what Aidu is doing is doing some uh, tight integrations with the most widely used services in DeFi space so that basically using them gets easier and easier. And the average Joe doesn't even need to know, you know, what a DAP is. Um, they just, you know, use the wallet and they see that they can get interest on um, a stablecoin. So if they have ETH, they can just, uh, with like a couple of clicks, uh, get some uh, DAI. And then from DAI, in a couple of clicks, um, they can just, you know, get interest uh, and see how much interest they have got over time and things like that. So it's it's a very simple interface. Something else we, we are doing now, we have, we have just released, is also an initial integration with Fulcrum and we are going to release like uh, uh, more integrations over time. The idea is that all the different financial tools uh, you may need in the ecosystem will be like at your fingertips without the need to go straight to the DAP. So you can potentially go to the DAP if you want, right? Uh, But I think this is still uh, too much like complicated for the average Joe to use. It's like for... Quite, still quite for techies, I, I would say. Um, while uh, if you have like a simple mobile application that gives you access access to the power of those tools without you to, you know, uh, study hours and hours to understand how it works and how it's supposed to work and check if you're doing everything correctly, then I think we can lower the entry barrier uh, more and more and it will be like um, much, uh, we will get traction uh, faster. I completely agree. It's a it's a huge problem in the space. Um, just like a little personal anecdote, I opened up a Maker CDP, um, and, I, and like I just like oh I'm just gonna open it up, you know, for like fifty bucks or hundred bucks or whatever, something small that if it completely goes to zero, then whatever. And like I still am confused on how to like close it, and so I might ask, actually ask you to help me after that. But yeah, I mean, I love the idea of you download an app, you get all your DeFi apps there, and with a, a couple clicks or a swipe, then you now could utilize this DAP without having to understand all the technicalities behind it. So you know, our, our actually our motto here at Crypto One Hundred One is the Average Consumer's Guide to Cryptocurrency. So it sounds like that's pretty in line uh, with what you guys are doing at Provable and at I Do. Awesome. So in closing, uh, one of the things that we like to ask everybody is, 
you know, who is one of the people that has made a big impression on you or somebody that you admire from afar, uh, the work that they've done and the contributions that they've made to the space? Uh, that's a good question. As like a few weeks ago, uh, I was at uh, DEF CON uh, in uh, Osaka and I saw the presentation from um, uh, one of the founders of uh, archive.org. And I think that project is like very, I mean, it has been really critical in enabling uh, like uh, the um, knowledge transfer of what has happened in the very first years of the internet uh, till today. It's like, uh, you know, general archive of human knowledge. Um, so not just limited to uh, digital informations, but also to books, movies, and all kind of stuff. So I, I think his presentation um, was really interesting. Uh, but this made me, you know, uh, thinking um, basically um, what my conclusion was after his presentation is that uh, really we we are like uh, building this whole ecosystem you know on the shoulders of like uh, the the giants that in the early in the late 80s early 90s have uh, um like uh, driven uh, the first uh, um you know uh, cypherpunk movement basically so i'm still reading in the different uh, uh, you know uh, crypto mailing lists uh, like the messages that like Satoshi was writing back then or also you know Peter Todd when he was 16 <laughs> or like uh, also on a bitcoin talk like uh, i i remember still diving into posts of um, written by Halfini in 2011 on you know the use of trusted computing and blockchain so things that today are you know just being built now by innovative startups where already uh, like uh, design in principle and taught by um you know those those people that were very early so they were completely wrong with their uh, timing but um at the same time they were so right uh, in uh, you know uh, pushing for uh, the right uh, concepts and for um you know what today is finally getting some traction with uh, you know cryptography becoming more and more uh, mainstream thanks to uh, you know its use with blockchain uh, so i think you know all those people have really made it possible possible and enabled us to be here today. Uh, so I think they, they have been an example. And uh, thanks to the internet, we know what they were saying back then, and we can still make good use of it. Uh, so I think there is still a, a, a lot to, to be read and a lot to be, uh, you know, uh, implemented based on their initial thoughts. That sounds amazing. A lot of really, really influential people. Uh, Peter Todd is one of the main Bitcoin core devs. Hal Finney, who uh, a lot of people suspect is in the group that is Satoshi Nakamoto, archive.org, one of these websites where you could go to this website, archive.org, and then basically see what a web page looked like at any time in its history. It's it's kind of an amazing thing. And never I wish I saw that presentation. I'll have to go check it out uh, if it's online somewhere. So good call outs, good shout outs. Um, the very last question I'll ask is what is some other company in the space that is making leaps and bounds for us that um, really inspires you? That's a, you know, a company that you look up to that impresses you. I'm quite, I'm quite impressed by uh, like the developments of 
set protocol by uh, token sets. So th- this project uh, is really interesting to me. Uh, but in general, I think that many companies in uh, DeFi <laughs> have done an impressive work, given that uh, this term uh, like didn't even exist uh, until uh, like early this year. So I feel like we are moving faster and faster in this space, which is what we get from uh, you know interoperability and composability. Uh, people say you know uh, DeFi tools are like uh, you know Lego blocks, and I, I I think that I mean that's right. Uh, that, that's exactly what all those companies are doing, and token sets specifically. I think they are building something very powerful uh, that will like become the foundations, uh, many tools that will be uh, critical for the success of the technology in the Ethereum space and maybe also on other platforms. Um, so I think that many of um, those companies that we see in the DeFi space um, will um, like are, are trying to push the boundaries on you know the Ethereum platform. So the way I think it could contribute to it is by helping basically going beyond those boundaries uh, by using via the P tokens maybe you know all the uh, liquidity that we have on the other chains on the other tokens so that they could uh, use it within their own projects so that once they are ready and they are finished with uh, you know filling up all the <laughs> the the ethereum uh, um, blockchain with as much as we could build there uh, they will still benefit from uh, um, you know what people had built on other platforms and at the end of the day uh, I think in a few years uh, what we'll see is that there will be no clear boundaries between those different blockchains um so what it will mean is that at the end um like uh, um the the power of every single blockchain will be shared the liquidity will be shared among blockchains uh, and everything will easily float from uh, uh, you know one blockchain to the other with very uh, small friction so i think at the end of the day this will be what DeFi will be about it will not be about you know smart contracts on ethereum it will be in general about uh, you know unleashing the power of decentralized finance regardless of the underlying platform Amazing. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for your time today. And if the good people of Crypt Nation want to find out uh, more about you, want to follow your Twitter, do you have those handles off, off the top of your head? Uh, yep. Yeah, my personal Twitter handle is like my first and last name. So Thomas Bertani, while um, the the one of Adu is uh, like Adu.io and the one of Provable is uh, um, Provable XYZ. Perfect. I'll link to those in the show notes as well as um, to all your guys' websites. Thank you so much for joining us and we will catch you around. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.